This is Lifting the Lid. Conversations with fascinating people living life on their terms. Our next guest requires no introduction. All right, on today's episode of Lifting the Lid, I'm lucky enough to have the very passionate VB Marketing and Sponsorship Manager, Hugh Jelly. I don't know if you call that luck, Dean, uh, but yep, yeah. Hugh Jelly, as today's guest. Welcome, Hugh. Thank you, Dean. Good to be here. Uh, good to catch up with you again. I've enjoyed our, our creative journey over the time, so uh, looking forward to chatting about it. All right. Well, I want to start off with why. So let's start off with the current role at CUB, and I'm sure it's a question you get asked at barbecues all the time. Do you drink VB? <laughs> yes. So simple answer, yes, big drinker of, uh, of VB. I Look, I've been at Accountant uh, United Breweries for 11 years now, which is a pretty good stint uh, uh, in this day and age, I would love to go back in a little time machine and see how I interacted with beer brands before I started working at CUB. I've got no idea what I drank. I know that I think VB and Carlton Draft were, were pretty much staples for me as a as a 20 year old making my way in the world. But I think like most consumers these days, I, I never really gave it a thought. I went into the store and and bought whatever was on on special or whatever took my fancy at the time. Uh, now it's very very different where I, I live and breathe the brand every single minute of the day. Uh, not just our brand, but our competitors and uh, and other brands in our portfolio, because it all meshes together in a bit of a patchwork in the marketplace, and you just got to be across across everything these days. So yeah, big big VB drinking out. Love the brand, love what it stands for, um, and a lot of responsibility on the shoulders to to make sure it continues that way as well. Now VB is a is an iconic brand in Australia, and you mentioned you've been there for eleven years. But tell me how and why a finance analyst at Ford. <laughs> became the marketing and sponsorship manager at so you, VB. You've done your research on LinkedIn, have you? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's a uh, that's a long story. Um, I'll give you the, the short version. Um, would be that I had no idea what I wanted to do when I left school. Um, I was a big, I was a jock. I, I was the captain of the, the hockey team. I was in the first 11 cricket. I loved playing footy in the, in the schoolyard, all that sort of stuff. I uh, just loved being around my mates. Um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left university. They all went off to... to um, the Uni of Melbourne and did commerce. So I sort of trudged along with them and thought, right, I'll go along and do that. There must be jobs in, in finance and commerce. And so I, I studied uh, commerce at, at uni. I got sick of that after about three years and, and got a um, cooperative job at Ford Motor Company. I thought working with cars, but I didn't know anything about cars, not particularly into cars to, um, to this day. I still drive a Ford today though. And uh, so I, I spent a year in the workforce and I thought, you know what, having a desk job, it's kind of cool. Like you, you've got some sort of level of importance. Uh, you know, I wore a suit, didn't wear a tie, but wore a suit and dressed up and went to work. And, uh, and there was a lot of validation uh, in that for me as a, as a young 20, would have been 21, 22 at that stage. And then, of course, after five or six or seven years of that, you do start to have uh, an increased level of awareness that, you know, what is this? Is this what life is about? Is turning up to your job, wearing a suit, uh, sitting in front of a computer all day, dealing in numbers that are important in that day, but in two weeks' time, you, they're forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not really leaving a lasting legacy. They'll replace me by someone else who'll do this. Anyway, I got into a job at, at Carlton United Brews, again, doing finance. And I think, I think it was probably in my late 20s when I started to realize that, hey, the rest of my life is pretty important. There's going to be, there's going to be marriage coming. I, didn't have a, I hadn't met my, my current wife then. But I knew that I wanted marriage and I knew that I wanted kids and I knew that I wanted to enjoy the rest of my life. And this wasn't really it. And I was very fortunate that someone at, at Carlton United Breweries sort of identified that I was a, a relatively creative person. The way I gave my presentations in finance and the way I presented numbers and the way I told stories in finance uh, was a little bit different to the norm. And so they gave me an opportunity managing sponsorships at Carlton United Breweries, which you can imagine I'm probably 30 years old at this time. Like that is just your dream job. You've you've made it. You are you are you are working with Cricket Australia, yeah. with the AFL, with the NRL, uh, Caulfield Racing, uh, all sorts of incredible sporting organisations. The World Surfing League was in our portfolio as well, and that was the dream job: beer and sports that I, I loved anyway. Um, yeah, me too. To be honest, I couldn't believe I was getting paid to turn up to to work each day. I didn't tell my bosses that, of course, uh, but I would have done that job for for free, uh, and did that for three or four years. Um, and through that, I, I developed a real affinity with uh, the VB brand because they were the major sponsors of Cricket Australia and the NRL uh, and the New South Wales Blues, and a number of NRL clubs as well. And then eventually um, got tapped on the shoulder and, and asked, well, why don't you come and manage the VB brand? 
and if I thought the sponsorships role was my my dream job, uh, well, this just took it to the this was this was heaven. This was this was going to be a heaven for me. You know, VB, as you say, an iconic Australian brand, probably one of the top three or four iconic Australian brands. You know, managing that huge vessel uh, through the marketplace is not only a, a huge responsibility, but just an incredible passion project for me beyond the paycheck and beyond the the day to day of uh, admin and, and business and working in an organisation. It's just something that I love doing and love seeing consumers' reactions to the work that we do. I know how passionate you are for VB, but why do you love it so much? Is it just the sport or, you know, obviously most Aussie males are passionate about beer as it is, but is there anything particular that makes you so passionate? Yeah, I'll tell you what it is. So um, every time we do something on VB, people notice. They don't always love it. Um, you know, creativity, marketing is a very subjective thing. But the most powerful thing about VB is when we put something out on social media or put something out on television or put something out on a billboard, people respond and react. Now, the way it is with very traditional brands, um, people don't like change. That's just, a, that's just a reality of the marketplace. And so very often, um, a, a lot of the, the feedback will be, will be negative, but that's fine because at least you're getting that, mm. you're getting that feedback. Um, I couldn't imagine anything worse than working for a, a white goods organisation or a health insurance organisation where you're spending a lot of money on creativity and, and creative projects and television ads and no one bats an eyelid about them because quite simply they don't care. They don't, mm. they don't want to know. Uh, but for VB, they want to know. They want to engage with the brand. Um, you know, they befriend us on Facebook and Instagram and they feel compelled to have a, a passionate response one way or the other to whatever we post. And that's, that's great. That's a, that's a thrill ride to be on. Uh, it's terrifying, but at the same time, it's hugely rewarding um, just because you, you realize that everything you're doing is leaving a legacy. It's leaving a footprint and hopefully some of the ads and the creative that we do now, uh, people will be talking about in 5, 10, 20 years' time like they are for you know, the ads that VB produced back in 1968 when we first launched on television. And do you take the negativity in your stride when it comes along? Do you take it personally? Good, good question. I mean, it depends on the. A lot of it depends on a the level of influence you've had over the over the creative decisions that you're making as as a brand manager. Some of it, you know, there are just consumers out there, not just VB consumers, but consumers of all all goods, products, services that just don't like change and don't like the yeah. brands changing. It's it's what they remember. So you do have to tackle that head on because. You know, one of the most dangerous things as a marketer is your brand getting stuck in the past. Mm. Uh, and if it's not relevant, if it's not contemporary, if new consumers aren't looking at the brand and saying, yeah, that, that can fit into my life, well, then you are going to become a, a relic. And there's plenty of them in, in uh, not just Australia's marketing history, but in global, uh, in global marketing. And so that's, that's the scary thing. So the fact that they're, they're responding and they're, they may be negative about it, you've just got to try and pick through and say, why are they negative? Are they negative because they're hanging on to the past or they're negative because it's actually bad creative mm. and, that, and that happens. And so that's the thing that you worry about. But you know, as long as you, you manage the brand and you do the job that you, you do, you do the research, you should be fairly confident in your own ability to make sure that you, you are progressing the brand and keeping it contemporary and relevant. And speaking about change, tell me about the decision to change the alcohol content and the backlash that came with that and then the reason to change it back. Didn't you get my memo that we weren't, we weren't allowed to talk about this, Dean? No, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the number one question. It's the number one talking point. And um, you learn a lot of things out of hindsight. I would say the marketers of the time, I was probably working at Ford back in those days, but the marketers at the time, uh, I think that's one where they let the finance people take too much control of the brand and make a, a real commercial decision, which was to save money um, because the uh, the way the government regulates alcohol is is through the alcohol content. So that was a way for the the managers at the time to save money. But it wasn't it, it didn't deliver to any consumer truth, any consumer need. Um, you were always going to be fighting an uphill battle with consumers at the time, telling them that their product's going to go from four point nine eventually down to four point six percent ABV and change the, the flavor profile slightly with that. So, you know, back in 2012, they made the decision um, to, to put it back up to 4.9, go back to the original original flavor profile, et cetera. And it's had a huge response. Uh, and people have, again, the health metrics on the brand are really, really healthy. And, and anyone could have told you that. Someone uh, in the finance team could have told someone in the marketing team that that was going to be the response. But there's those in, in organizations, there are those uh, dynamics between the different departments. Uh, and finance won the day back then, uh, and thankfully in 2012, marketing won the day, and 
that's probably something where I can slam my fist down on the desk and say that not on my watch uh, is VB ever going to be reduced in ABV ever again. But it is, a, again, it's a legacy for the brand. It's something that people are passionate about. And first thing in um, uh, when I bump into people around a barbecue is they, they want to talk about that. And that's great. That's great. You, you, you own up to those mistakes and you, you move on. As long as you correct them and you've got the right intent, uh, you'll survive as a brand. Now, you did mention uh, being a sports nut and uh, you get some pretty cool perks being with a job. Tell me about some of the, the real highlights, those real pinch me moments You know where you've just been at a sporting event thinking, how good is this? Good question. I mean, so there's a lot. And um, and my wife, who is not particularly a, a sports fanatic, she's got very used to watching sport behind glass now. And uh, she doesn't know what a cue is for the, uh, you know, when you get to go up and get your tickets or get your pies or anything. Like we don't, there's not too much of that we have to deal with, um, you know, when, you, when you're a major sponsor of a sport. And uh, so I haven't taken any of that for granted. In fact, I still, I, I still love going along. In fact, I took my boy along to um, day five of the Boxing Day test, which was washed out. I think they played after lunch, but his attention span is is under an hour. So we, we turned up there at 10.30, hoping to see the first ball bowled. Uh, saw nothing. It was rained out the whole way through. But, you know, catching the train out to the MCG, going along through the turnstiles, taking him into the stadium. He's two years old, just looking around. At, you know, he'd never seen anything as big as that. Um, and that's what I... That, that's the great thing about kids is it is just reminding me to love uh, or, or, or relearn everything I loved about sport as a kid uh, when I grew up. I would say uh, for me, look, there's been a lot. I've been I've been down in the change rooms after an NRL premiership, which is pretty special, down there with the, the Melbourne Storm a couple of years ago, and even this year with the Sydney Roosters. But I must admit, I'll pick you up on that. My kids are good front runners in yeah, terms of yeah. they they <laughs> love jumping on board whoever's kind yeah. of winning. And I uh, did make note of the Storm scarf, you know, the one year, and then watching their last year, and then all of a sudden here's the Roosters scarf with Cooper Cronk, I think it was at the time in the dressing rooms. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. no, you've exposed me there because I did <laughs> I did turn along to the uh, to the grand final last year with a Storm scarf. Uh, of course, the Roosters won it. We did a promotion where we were releasing some limited edition Roosters cans into the marketplace. So it was important to get some photography down the change rooms with the Roosters team. And so the Storm scarf, I had to uh, take off, just duck it underneath some um, some big wheelie bins outside the Roosters change rooms. And look, to be honest, but this is the thing about being a, a sports fanatic is that you can identify, yeah, I've got my teams, but I don't let that sway my perception of that achievement of that team yeah. and what they did and what Cooper Cronk did. Um, you know, the, the respect I've got for, for that player in particular um, you know, will we'll never be quashed. And just looking around the Roosters and seeing how happy they were, you, you know, it just it fills you. It fills you with, you know, this is the power of sport and this is why brands want to get involved with sport as well. Mm. And that's why we were releasing some VB cans that had Roosters colours right through it, themes right through it, because we were combining the, you know, the passions of Victoria Bitter consumers with with uh, Roosters fans, and that was a great little promotion for us. So they, they've all been great, but I think the one the one moment that stands above all is um, Brownlow Medal. Couldn't tell you which year it was. Probably in the last three or four years, Sam Mitchell was the favourite to win it. So of course the uh, I think the favourites turn up in descending order, so that the media can have the most yeah. time with the player that's probably going to win the Brownlow Medal. So I think he was the player that was uh, that arrived last on the red carpet. I had flown back from Sydney. I was playing in a in a hockey tournament in Sydney and had, had flown home on the last on the on the flight uh, straight from the airport. Got changed in the um, in the bathrooms at Crown, and so of course my wife and I were walking up the stairs to the to the main um, to the main room at, at the casino where the the event was being held, and there was Sam Mitchell um, walking up just behind us. Now I. I, I didn't know he was behind us at the time. I sort of stopped my wife and said, hey, let's just take in this moment and, and take a bit of a selfie on the on the steps as we headed up towards the Palladium room. And Sam Mitchell came up from behind and just tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, do you want me to, do you want me to take that? And I was a, I was a bit of a, a rabbit in the headlight, deer in the headlights. I didn't know what to, what to say or do. And I said, oh, actually, I wouldn't mind a photograph with you. And of course, I didn't realize just how in- insulting that was for my wife who was standing right next to me that I interrupted our, our selfie to then, uh, to then have a photograph taken with Sam Mitchell on the steps as he headed up. And I, I think he may have won the Brownlow medal. I can't, I can't recall. But... Was that the uh, Joe Watson year when he won and then uh, uh, Sam Mitchell? I hope not because I'm an Essendon supporter. So. And that just uh, also reminded me that a lot of these sports guys, I mean, you grew up just revering them, idolizing them, but... At the same time, a lot of them are just hugely nice guys, and we don't we don't hear those stories enough. And that's that's a big thing actually as a as a brand marketer. Um, we did a great thing with Cia Soliola, Canberra Raiders forward, who doesn't speak very much in um, uh, in the public eye. He's he's, he's not the, the go to person for for Channel Nine when they're broadcasting these events. Uh, but we did a thing where he went out to a, a farmer and gave that farmer 
24 tons of hay because the farmer was struggling with the drought. And, you know, Sia jumped in his own car, drove the three and a half hours from Canberra to uh, down near Bega where we were filming, uh, spent a full day with us, you know, it was probably written in a contract somewhere that we had four hours with him, but he was there at least, you know, five or six hours and no, no question of ever leaving until we got the job done. And so it's when you work with those people that it's just, it's the perfect combination of, yeah. you know, you're an incredible person, you've done incredible things on the sporting field, people love you, but you know what, you're also a super nice guy as well and, and super giving. Um, and so, you know, Sam Mitchell, he, I've never worked with him, haven't done anything with him, but that moment just sort of made me think, you know, he didn't know me, but took time out as he was heading up to potentially one of the biggest nights of his career uh, and was happy to take a photograph and volunteered to do so. Um, so they're the real, they're the real nice sort of spine tingling, the warming moments that you get every once in a while on the job. Yeah, no, they are great. Those I've, I've had a few of those myself. Who's the one? Who's the nicest sports personality you've worked with? Oh, the nicest. I must admit, on our VB job, probably uh, it was Shane Watson and George Bailey. I, I was going to throw out George Bailey. I thought George Bailey was exceptional. They were both really nice guys. Uh, Mitchell Stark, you know, was great as well. Alyssa Healy, all really good actually on that particular shoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a few, you know. Questionable ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as, I can't go as, to the questionable ones because well. you might want to work with them in the future. <laughs> exactly, but. exactly. Yeah, no, you're right. There, there's lots of those stories. Actually, Cameron Smith is probably yeah. one of the real nice guys. I mean, look, you know, certainly they've got boundaries too, which mm. you must respect. And mm. a lot of times they'll give you as much as, as you mentioned, they'll go above and beyond. They'll have boundaries, which is totally fine. Um, but yeah, Cam was great. I worked with him a couple of times. You know, a lot of them, we forget, they're just knockabout blokes that we revere. Mm-hmm. We make heroes and idols and all this. And a lot of them are from really working class backgrounds that literally had nothing else and been thrust into the spotlight. So it's yeah. it's a big jump and a big change that I don't think the average person grasps all the time. Yeah, and I think there's there's two ways that that can go for, I mean, for you and I, I think we re- respect that and acknowledge that and we can have a conversation with them on pretty level terms. Uh, but unfortunately, there's a hell of a lot of sports fans out there that will bump into these players at a pub or yes. a, on the street and they'll feel some sort of, you know, they've got to square up to them yes. or, or, or prove themselves to them. And that can be misinterpreted in some ways and can can be really uncomfortable for these guys uh, as well who don't don't have anything to prove. They do it on the sports field. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, a, they're an interesting lot to work with. You're right. They don't, they're not necessarily tremendously ambitious in being a successful person but they are ambitious on the sporting field. Mm. They just want to be the best that they can be on the sporting field. And then it's a funny thing, sport, where that can lead to incredible financial return and huge social status yes. uh, as well. So that's um, uh, it's really interesting to, just to see that dynamic play out and see people, you know, there might be some some people that you work with who uh, they haven't made it at that stage. They're still still mm. up and coming. They've just cracked it into the Australian cricket team, for an example. For example. And then watching that journey over over three or four years in a in a job to them becoming you know a real serious contender in the Australian team or in an AFL team is a uh, is fascinating to watch as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now you did mention that you are a bit of a hockey nut and you still play. Absolutely, to yeah, this day. Yeah. So be honest, does VB sponsor your teammate with any <laughs> kit or uh, or after uh, training beverages or anything like that? They don't. They're in the. They're, it's in the fridge at uh, a local hockey club, um, which uh, I have to you know make sure I lobby for. I'd probably leave club if uh, if they didn't have uh, VB there. I guess we've released a new merchandise line recently. I think that's probably been the number one request I've had from all the, the hockey teammates so far is where they could provide uh, training jerseys <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. But I think uh, quite seriously, when I talk about responsibility, we do have to we do have to make sure that we um, uh, we live and breathe that as well. So you know we've got uh, a hell of a lot of very important commercial relationships and business relationships with uh, with big sporting clubs and organisations, and have to make sure that we um, we treat them really respectfully as well. And the other the other challenge you've got with with grassroots clubs as well. I mean, alcohol is an eighteen plus product, mm. so we have to be very very careful about the way we uh, engage with those clubs, just to ensure that nothing's going to go to um, uh, to junior players. Because a lot of fathers wouldn't think twice about handing a you know some some alcohol branded paraphernalia to their fourteen year old son. But for us, um, we've got to do uh, everything within our control to ensure that doesn't happen. So, but yes, I, I get a lot of requests uh, for. Fundraising nights, Q and A nights, etc., to supply the product and any merchandise that I can as well, and and I'll help where I can, absolutely. Now, for those that don't know, I guess you you are very hands-on with your projects, and you love writing too. You actually wrote two campaigns that yep. I um, directed for VB, yep. and making little videos for your team and things like that. Yep. How and when did you become interested 
in, I guess, the creative side and what spawned that passion? Yeah, so it was um, back when I was working in finance and I was then having that realisation that I was lacking a lot of creativity in my life. In fact, I was delivering a lot of creativity, but I was doing it um, outside of work hours. So uh, the way I engage with my mates, the way I organise things, um, you know, for my girlfriend at the time, I would I would do things that were sort of over the top in in creativity because I needed I needed that outlet. Um, and I wasn't I wasn't getting it during my work hours. And then you just mentioned hockey before um, with a bunch of mates. I saw a couple of footy shows on Channel Thirty One. I thought, oh, you know, there should be something like this for hockey. And so uh, one summer, over a few. VBs probably. We decided, you know, why don't we do this? So we sent in some some tapes to Channel Thirty One of a hockey show that we filmed in our living room, uh, and of course they sent them back straight away and said thank you very much, not required. So we worked on it over uh, over the next couple of months and eventually submitted a, a demo tape, if you like, to them. They said, you know what, there's there's something in this, and we'd like to give you a, a slot. And we started on at nine thirty at night on a Tuesday night or something. And the following year, we went to what was considered prime time, which was seven o'clock on a on a Thursday night on Channel Thirty One, which we held down that time slot for for two or three years. And that was that was incredible. But that was blowing out to a full time job on top of a full time yeah. job. I was still doing my nine to five role at Ford at the time. Uh, good clock off from that, and then straight into the hockey show production and coordination and. Uh, there's still some of those stuff. episodes floating around somewhere, mate. Got them it? all on DVD at home. I, I'm happy to share. Happy to share a box set with you. <laughs> um, not that anyone's got DVD players anymore. But then, I, I guess the one thing that suffered was my personal relationships. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had a girlfriend at the time, and all of a sudden, I was working full time, doing another um, full time role outside of that. And that's one of those things where the you know the the, the important things in your life that you have to balance um, were, were were sort of going out of balance at that at that stage. Um, and that's where after the hockey show we did uh, three three and a three and a bit years of the hockey show, but I think we got what we needed out of that. Was there a big audience for a hockey show? So it was uh, it was sixty to seventy odd thousand people. We were we were averaging on a on a Thursday night watching it, which we were really happy with. Like I mean, mid two thousands is that what year approximately? Oh, this is two thousand and four through to two thousand and seven. Okay. But the most important thing was within the hockey community, they loved it. Like kids loved it, family loved it. When the hockey show guys would turn up to a ground. Uh, the kids would gravitate around us and they would be jumping around in the background of, of shots and takes. And, and that was great. It was really bringing the community together. And then clubs started contacting us saying, hey, we've got a big game this weekend. Can you come out and cover this game? And we would do it in a very lighthearted, informal way. You know, it, was just, it was just fun. It was just harnessing the power of, of the hockey community and letting them bring the, bring the entertainment. And we would simply the, you know, the format with which to do that. But I was working with a couple of couple of names. So Nick Ball was one of them. He was, uh, you know, eighteen years old. He was our first editor. Uh, he's now living over in over in the US and doing some incredible commercials. One of his commercials screened at Super Bowl uh, last year for, a, uh, I think it was a car brand. I can't recall. Gus Johnson, another one who was working on uh, working at Cleminger Creative at the time, uh, went over to San Francisco and and he's uh, he's still living over in the in the US now. Uh, and then for me, I guess it, it got me got me that realization from finance and making the transition to, to sponsorships and now eventually to marketing. You know, it, it just helped me realize that doing something creative at work was so important for the rest of your life because it is your life and it is important. And I think I've kept kind of that hands-on, like I, I want to be involved with the projects. I also have to ensure that um, there are very clear lines between the reason you engage a creative agency or the reason you engage a production agency because they have got a hell of a lot more capacity and capability than what you've got yourself um, so you've also got to let go of a lot of projects and let them put their creative spin on it because y- you see everything through your filter uh, but your filter may not necessarily be right for for any given project but do you think that helps as a brand manager to have that type of vision too like is it a help or hindrance or depending on who you're working with yeah exactly so i think it, i think it helps as long as you're self-aware about it yeah. as long as you're self-aware of the and as long as you're aware of the um, the personalities of the creative team that you're working or the, the director that you're working on a project, um, you need to, and that's why I, and the great thing about working on the Victoria Bitter is there's always a reason at the start of any production or creative process to catch up over a beer yeah. and have a chat first and just get to know each other, mm-hmm. just check in with each other and see how you like to work. Um, that's really, really important because the last thing that a, uh, you want to do is engage a director that's got a, a big ego their way or the, or the highway sort of thing. And if you do get someone like that because their creative capacity is, 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 is just so big that you've, you've got to engage them, then you have to modify the way that you, right. uh, you work with them as well. It's sometimes it's just so hard to let, let go of ownership of a project, uh, sort of creative ownership over it. But I think, um, 
the number one thing that I think comes out well with the people that I work with, and you touched on it before, is is just passion. Uh, and I think if you can tell, if you can convey to the the creative agency and to the and to the production agency and to anyone else involved with the project, if you can show how passionate you are in that project, then that passion becomes a little bit infectious and just gets passed on from the next the next person working yeah, it on it. Yeah, drives everyone person. else within the process. Um, and I think that's that's probably the number one thing that I've I've seen. And I, I could imagine that working in Working in health insurance, or you know, whatever it is. I don't, and if anyone's listening from health insurance, I don't want to not that talk wrong down. With that. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there must be marketers out there who are working on on projects on brands that they're not particularly passionate about, and it must be a real challenge to get everyone else motivated on on those projects. And, and I should say, of course, they're going to be passionate from a you know a bottom line point of view. But what if money wasn't a factor? Would they would they really care yeah. about this piece of creative that they're making? Uh, and I think that's probably the challenge in everyone's workday life is how do you make whatever it is that you're doing, uh, how do you make it? Because anything can be made important. Back when I was working in finance, I, I got over and above to make those numbers important in creative, uh, you know, yep. interesting ways. And you can apply that to anything that you're doing, whether it's parenthood, uh, raising kids, whether it's the way you deal with your, your family at home, uh, the way you deal with your mates, your colleagues, or your work, you can overlay creativity across everything and it just makes everything better. In terms of the process, do you just enjoy it regardless of what it is? So whether that's small piece of content, large budget TVC, whatever it might be, do you, do you have a particular favourite? Uh, we, we've had projects that have been complete balls ups and uh, I guess you know it's really worthwhile sitting back at the end of a project and having a, a beer with a team and reflecting on the journey that you've you've been on. Uh, having a bit of a balcony discussion, you know, the real measure of people and and project teams and working groups and agencies is how they deal with that adversity. It's very easy to throw the toys out of the cot and say, "No, nah, it's too hard," mm. but you know what? There's some real cathartic experiences we've had with agencies and people where you kind of you recognise that everything that's happened so far, we've just stuffed it up. We've balls this up. It's a mess. But you take the deep breath. You be honest with each other. Get all that baggage out. And then you can kind of move on. And often, you know, some of the, the best creative work I find comes under all sorts of timeline pressure and comes at the last minute and is just a, an aha moment. And those aha moments can come at any time. You just can't, you can't give up on them because you know, they're going to come. You've got to, you've got to have absolute belief that they're going to come. And you, you adjust everything around those moments coming and, and then resourcing up to, to capitalise on it. You just mentioned it there in terms of you know, some of your favourites being things that come in at the last minute. And I know there's lots of research and focus groups and things like that that you have to go through. Yep. Do you think at times too much goes into the hows and whys and all of this and research and over analysing what it is rather than just kind of going with the gut and what feels good? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, I think at the end of the day, I, I convince myself that um, good creative will get through the process. Uh, whether that's um, you know formal quantitative qualitative research, it, it will get through, uh, or whether the process is simply just reporting up to senior management and execs and you know brand like Victoria Bitter, um, you know a lot of the creative will get to the to the very top of the organisation because it's such an important brand, and if it's good creative, it'll get through there. I guess the other side of the coin is if you go with your gut, and your gut is wrong then you, you can't turn around to anybody else. You can't turn around to the creative agency or to the, mm. uh, to the production team and, and, and blame them if, if that's what you want to do. You, know, you have to take accountability for that and that can, uh, that can affect your career. So look, the, the processes are there for a reason. They're there from past mistakes that uh, the marketers and organisations have, have done. Um, you know, you, I, I think the most healthy thing to do is embrace those processes, understand them and... Like I say, I think the most powerful creative will get through. I mean, how how Cadbury ever got through a gorilla playing a playing a, a guitar set? Um, yep. You know, I'll never know. If you had to put that in front of um, consumers to research, they would have said, "I don't get it. I don't. Yep. I don't understand this." And so that's what you've just got to you've got to weigh up. You know, what is the or the risk of this benefit of forcing your gut feel through the organisation. Favourite VB campaign? It doesn't have to be one you've worked on. Is there a particular favourite from through the years that you like? 
Uh, I think my favorite is actually the the culmination of what VB advertising is. So, um, you know, a hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer and the best cold beer is Vic. Victoria Bitter, like that line, people people know, people resonate. You can start that line in a pub and they'll, they'll finish it for you. Uh, as well as the song, obviously, which I'm not going to give you a, a rendition of it, but everyone everyone knows it, uh, obviously, which has been being used since 1968. Like that all, that all just... It's just got that feel, it's that vibe uh, about the Constitution, um, to, to quote the castle. And, and that's the thing that, um, that I really enjoy about the brand. In recent years, look, the, the C.S. Oliola, I met an incredible family, the Jessup family, uh, who live up, uh, up near Bega. And like I mentioned earlier, we got C.S. Oliola to drive out. It was a nice spot. I remember watching that. It was good. Yeah, that was incredible. I mean, we worked on a piece with, um, uh, with the Australian cricket team uh, that I, I really enjoyed. It was just a really, really nice message where we got consumers could have their names on the front of Australian yeah, cricketers. Yeah, great. Um, and you, you mentioned Shane Watson. I remember his father... Bob Watson, I think, Bob. was his name from yep. memory. Um, and I bumped into Shane at the uh, at the Allen Border Medal, and Shane Watson's wife came up to me and said, "Setting aside all the marketing and the brand stuff, just getting Shane and his father Bob together, having a conversation, and Shane thanking Bob, his father, for his his contribution. That may not necessarily happen in in real life, but the fact that we you know found a way to to make that happen, you know, she said that was that was really valuable to the family, and they asked for a copy of the, the tape and all that sort of stuff. So, really enjoyed that. Things like the VB vending machine, um, you know, that's something I'll, I'll always remember, and I think people will, will keep raising that and keep an eye out. We might we might see that in. Uh, uh, in the marketplace again soon. Of which I do have one right in my uh, just, office yeah. <laughs> right now. <laughs> see a prior position at the office here, which is great. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then there's there's obviously parts of our marketing journey that history won't look upon kindly. ABV was a was a great one, but at the same time, it gave us an opportunity to to take out full page ads in the paper, get our CEO at the time to write a letter. Uh, and apologise to every single beer consumer in the country and say we got it wrong and we're going to fix that. And next month our, our beer will be back to four point nine percent. Like that was that was pretty cool. You said you won't do the uh, the song. What I did have, if you could recite the famous words as a follow up question, do you know all the the hard earned thirst? Well, no, yeah, I mean there's there's all sorts of versions. So John Million was the was the original voiceover. Uh, he did it up until nineteen eighty nine. He did it posthumously for a number of years after that. Uh, and of course, Will McGuinness is the is is our voice now. Yeah, the words change, but you know, a hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer, and the best cold beer is Vic Victoria Bitter. Um, it's it's I don't know, it's like a second language now. It just uh, it just rolls off the tongue. Um, and brands, there's a, hell of a lot of brands out there that would pay a hell of a lot of money. Me, we're talking millions of dollars, even tens of millions of dollars, to build up a memory structure like that that consumers can can recite back to you. You know, obviously brands evolve and things like that. Do you ever then weigh up if it's time to move away from a certain thing? How long do we continue with this? You know, where's that balance? Yeah, so it's unusual for a brand like Victoria Bitter because I reckon most brands would stick with a uh, a campaign or a tagline for, um, you know, often, often one year. Uh, if it works, probably three years, maybe five years. Um, but as you touched on earlier, like brands have to progress. They have to evolve. Um, otherwise, they get stuck in the past and, and just become a bit of wallpaper. Uh, so VB is, is hugely um, unique in that since 1968, 1968 was the first time that that line hit airwaves and we're still using it today. I mean, that, that's unheard of. There'd be very few brands like that uh, that would be doing that. Um, so I think, I think what you've got to do is identify what, what resonates, what's popular, um, but the creative articulation of it, the execution of it, in a way that that brings it forward. Um, otherwise, we could we've got such an inventory of old television advertising for VB. We could probably put that back on television yeah. screens now. People would enjoy it; they'd like it. But would they think anything different of the brand? The brand has a very different role in society now than what it did back in the nineteen seventies and eighties, etc. Um, uh, for example, there'd be very few women in those ads. Now, women are uh, a huge part of the population, obviously, but also uh, a huge part of our consumption base. Um, and we have to make sure that equally that they're represented in our advertising, which they weren't back in those days. Uh, and that's that's changed. So we have to change with it. 
You have also mentioned it previously, but uh, the move into merchandise is sitting here with your Victoria bit of shirt on. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. Very kindly brought in a VB yeah. hat. Yeah. How and why did you decide to move into VB? Because it looks like it's been taken up pretty positively. It, it's, it's it's huge. And it's, uh, it's it's probably one of those, I mean, um, years ago it was the vending machine. That was the first conversation. And when they found out you worked at Carlton, you know, breweries, oh, the vending machine, that's awesome. And, and then it was the cricket scoreboard. And uh, it's always something. Now it's merchandise. Um, you know, my... Uh, my wife's always putting in a request for her legal counterpart at her office who who wants a cap that I had to get a get a cap for the other day. Yeah, the the why is I, I, I can't answer the question. I don't know why it wasn't done before. Was it your idea? Um, I'll say it was it was it was the idea of my. You take credit if you. Uh, I, I can't. I can't really. I can't really. <laughs> I, I came into the brand two years ago. Um, it was the idea of of uh, the classic category manager Tim Bavadia, uh, who said, "You know what? We should be doing doing merchandise." And then it was you know, our team that that got this thing up and running. And it wasn't wasn't easy. It took a long time. There's a lot of um, a lot of hurdles to go through. We're not on it. Proudly say we're not an online um, merchandise retail company. We're a, we're a beer company. We make great beer and uh, you know to great standards, etc. So there was a big learning curve for us. And why it wasn't done before, I don't know. I think the industry had been on the train of, you know, merchandise is something that we give out at the at the tap handle. As soon as someone buys a schooner or a jug, you know, they get a, a cap or a T-shirt or something that's, you know, cheaply made. But for us, we looked at it and thought, you know, we've, we've built a pretty bloody good brand here over, uh, over 160 years with Victoria Bitter. Um, and that's all the people working before us, all the brewers, all the... Um, you know all the incredibly technical people who to Thomas Aiken who you know first founded the brewery 160 years ago we've built a pretty significant brand here and we think it's something that, that people would want to wear and, and want to pay for and it's not a uh, it's not something that we're looking to make money out of per se it's a brand building activity for me so you'll find everything you know reasonably priced etc it's really not about that it's about um, you know ensuring that this brand lives on in the you know the creative and the cultural spaces of today you know, whatever they wore back in the, the 30s and 40s uh, wouldn't be relevant anymore. People were wearing very different cool caps and trendy things that I always said to the people who, who developed the merchandise that um, and we're, we're doing some music sponsorship as well. And the, the basic rule is that uh, if I've heard of the band, then they're probably not cool. Uh, and and same thing, if I'd wear that, it's probably not cool. So I, I want stuff that the, uh, the 25-year-olds of today are going to be wearing. Now, I want to um, break over now into happiness. And you are one of the most happy and positive people that I know. Have you always been like this? And do you need to be happy, as you mentioned before, in all aspects of your life? It is a big, big, deep question for a, uh, for a, for a morning conversation, Dean. But I, I think um, you can't force happiness. I don't, I don't think you can make yourself, you can make yourself happy. Um, I've had, I've had some, some real dark times early on, you know, back when I was a university student, I'd wasn't enjoying what I was studying and I wasn't enjoying who I was being. And um, I think probably the more important word is balance. Um, and mentioned earlier that, you know, while I was working full time and uh, I've always been a passionate worker, while I was doing this this hockey show side project, there were other things, family, fitness, my own health that, um, you know, I probably, probably neglected a little bit. And it's kind of like one of those those synthesizers. You got the buttons, and the buttons they don't all have to be in a straight line. You're not you're not lending equal time to everything, um, but I think you do have to be aware of where you are at in life and dial the buttons up and down. Um, if you want to you know, establish a personal relationship, an intimate relationship, then you need to dial that up and, and work on that a little bit. If you want to establish your career, uh, you need to dial that up. But at the same time, you need to understand that there's a couple of things that you're going to have to dial back and, and be, be cognizant of that. The worst thing you can probably do is dial a couple of things up without making any sacrifices uh, because then you just find yourself stretched and I think you can get yourself in pretty, um, in pretty difficult kind of emotional territory if you're not getting the right sleep, if you're not eating healthily, if you're not getting your exercise, um, etc. So, yeah, I'm a happy person, but I, I think where that comes from is that I can extract happiness out of all sorts of different facets of my life. So, um, you know, whether it's from my marriage and now from my, my kids, whether it's from my work, whether it's from my hockey club that I'm still still passionately involved with, whether it's from the mates going along to, to the cricket or footy. You know, if a couple of those dial down, um, I can lean on the others to, to dial up um, and really get, um, really get full benefit from. Uh, and I think what that does is it develops resilience in you so that when bad things happen, when things happen beyond your control, you can manipulate those little little buttons um, to deal with that. Uh, and everyone's going to have to deal with 
you know, loss and um, financial hardship or, uh, you know, career, your career gets hurt, you know, in the short term. You've just got to play with those buttons until you get back onto the onto the right track. And I think that that delivers resilience um, and happiness is the output. You know, it's just something that you can't be happy. You can't make yourself happy. You've just got to manage all those things in your life. And I think happiness is that is that output. You did also just mention the balance, which was my next question about the work-life balance. You seem to have that figured out. But yeah. um, I'm assuming that, you know, your wife has to take a lot of credit for that as well. You guys seem very similar in terms of your, you know, adventurous spirit. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, my wife absolutely deserves a lot of credit. I think my workplace deserves a lot of credit as well. So Carlton United Breweries uh, in particular, you know, working from home and, um, you know, good good sort of management style and set up and structure. Just had a new daughter at home. So over the last month has been been really challenging, managing her plus a, a two-year-old. Um, and I think uh, I think the systems and processes and my immediate management as well, just hugely understanding. And I think you, I think everyone kind of gets that you repay that back to the organisation. You know, as soon as you can afford to, as soon as you've got the time to to afford to. I can't I can't work to to one o'clock in the morning right now because I've got a got a family to look after and get into routine. Um, but there have been times when I would happily sit up and work till one o'clock in the morning because I'm passionate about the project and I know that the, I'm going to get rewarded for it as as well. Um, my wife, yeah. So I think we we're opposite in a, in a lot of ways, but I think that the, the great strength of the pair of us is that we can identify what the strength in the other person is and get on board with that. So I used to love camping and hiking to to an extent. You know, I, I like my hot showers and all that sort of thing. My wife uh, Zoe, she's a she's a botanist, and she spends a lot of time out in the field in uh, you know inclement temperatures, uh, in staying in huts with no hot water, no running water. Um, and I think when those two things came together, we just decided that you know what, going out and doing a lot more camping, a lot more adventuring. You don't need to spend a lot of money in resorts to to have a good time. And what that meant we could do was extend our holidays from a, a one week getting away, paying a couple hundred bucks a night on accommodation somewhere. So we could blow that out to three weeks and um, and cover off, you know, Machu Picchu and the Galapagos Islands. We climbed probably two of the most rewarding, um, not just holidays, but rewarding moments of my entire life have been getting to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro with, with my wife um, before we had kids and getting to Everest Base Camp and even to some peaks higher than Everest Base Camp. Um, and in fact, that's where we found out we were pregnant for the first time. Was I was going to say this was my next story. So yeah. tell me, tell me that as well. Yeah, it's beautiful. So we uh, we, we were trying to have kids for for probably about a year uh, with no luck, and obviously it it, it takes its toll uh, emotionally on you. And so after about a year, I said, look, let's. Um, we were hoping to have at this point, we were hoping to have have a child, and it just hadn't happened. And so I said, look, let's just forget about it and go away on holiday for three weeks and do something that we would never be able to do with kids. And that's where the idea of going to Nepal uh, came from. We booked it you know, with three weeks' notice, um, booked this holiday, flew into Kathmandu, took another flight to Lukla, which is billed as the most dangerous airport in the world, uh, made this climb to, um, to Everest Base Camp, which is done over about eight days, uh, and everyone gets sick, whether it's the food will get you or you know, other travellers that are sick will get you or the, you know, the, your immune system is going through all sorts of hell right now. Uh, you know, it gets down to minus 20 degrees, it's freezing cold, you haven't eaten a decent meal, you can't sleep at night. Something will get you, you'll, you'll, you'll get sick, like that's just a given. Uh, and, and my wife fell sick for, um, for two or three days where we just couldn't move. Uh, we had to stay where we were and had to adapt our, our itinerary a little bit. And then uh, on the way, she got to Everest Pace Camp to her credit, and then on the way down, she started to say, well, actually, my chest is starting to feel really, really sore, which is unusual because the dizziness, the headaches, the vomiting, the nausea was all kind of symptoms of altitude sickness, which is very, very common uh, around that part of the world. And then she just had this thought that maybe she was pregnant. And um, uh, we were in the middle of nowhere at this point. You, there's no um, pregnancy tests. There's no 7-Elevens. There's no corner stores in, in the pool when you're at um, 5,000 metres above sea level. So we... Um, uh, we had to wait a couple of days until we got to a, a major town called Namchi Bazaar where there was a chemist and she could do a pregnancy test. And lo and behold, we just found out in this, I'll never forget it, this little second floor of a, a, a tiny little shack in um, in this village called Namchi Bazaar at 3,000 metres and found her pregnant. And we both cried and embraced and, and that was kind of the start of our family journey. And and now the, the, the adventures haven't stopped. I mean, we're not doing um, Kilimanjaro or, or Everest anymore, but... 
you know, camping is is an adventure. Um, going to we went to the tallest mountain in Crete, which is taller than Kosciuszko, but we took our three month old, um, a six month old son at the time, uh, to the top of that mountain, and that was hard. That was hard work, you know, getting that kid up there, and uh, and that's what we challenge ourselves to continue to do because it's very rewarding for us and. And we think it'll be very rewarding for the kids rather than spending times on iPads and iPhones. I was going to say, sometimes even just getting outside is a... I'll tell you what, packing a, the car to go to the beach is a, is a bloody adventure as well. Uh, and timing everything around nap times and yeah. you know, toilet times and uh, food. and like, uh, but, but I guess that's part of the thing. You, you, you've got a choice there. You can, um, you can fight that or you can, you can embrace it. And I do love the jelly baby hashtag mate that you're now doing all the adventures yeah. and all these type of stories and now you know getting told through the eyes of your of your son and things like that so yeah. one when did you come up with that hashtag that seems very yeah <laughs> very uh, befit, very befitting yeah it was, it, it's funny so when we started doing some more adventurous type holidays a lot of the research was done on on youtube i was having a look at, at youtube and there was a lot of um a lot of sort of instructional videos what to pack and a lot of creative videos in there as well but the one thing I kind of, I kind of, sort of had the realization of is that these videos—they're they're kind of permanent. They're, they're there, and you know, when you're um, 60 years old, you can look back and reflect on those videos and, and what you've done. And I sort of started started watching YouTube before I, I got onto um, onto Facebook. And I think Facebook, I think it's very healthy in that it's a real strong record of your family and what you've done. And you can always go back to, and I can show my son photos of um, my wife and I before he was born and see you know see what sort of people we were and what we've done so it's an incredibly powerful record keeping platform um, I can't remember what the first one was it was maybe it was the Birdsville races going to the Birdsville races which was a little adventure for us it was a long drive um, up to up to the middle of nowhere in Queensland and I made a little video and kind of looked back on that thought that's really cool I really, really enjoyed the process of making that as well as just watching it. I remember my wife and I for the next month would sort of sit back, uh, sit up in bed and just, just watch it. And, uh, and then I realized, you know what, what's going to be important for me is when I'm 80 years old and on my deathbed, um, I would love to sit back and just, just watch everything that I did and, and watch it with a real sense of fulfillment and achievement. And so then I've, I've just sort of started this, uh, this recording of those adventures, which have changed a little bit from um, you know, adventures just solely my wife and I to now all of a sudden, as you say, living that through the, the eyes of my son and now my, my daughter will come on board as well. I mean, Jelly Baby Adventures kind of just wrote itself with a surname <laughs> like Jelly. I don't think there was any other, any other alternative there. But now I just love, uh, love the fact that he'll have a repository as a, you know, as a teenager to go back and, and have a look. And the kids will at... love it too. My kids are eight and six now and just looking back at photos or videos and stuff that we do, like, they love it. They love yeah, it. and I think uh, it's going to create different challenges for us. I mean, we've got to make sure we don't raise a narcissist in any, in any way, shape or form. Um, but I tell you what, the thing that, that is really good for him as a two-year-old, learning language, learning technology, is that he's not, He's never watched a cartoon in his life. He's never, never watched The Wiggles or anything like that. Um, and if he's allowed screen time, it's either uh, David Attenborough loves David Attenborough. We put on if he wants to watch Gorillas, we'll put on YouTube um, David Attenborough and Gorillas, and he'll sit there and happily watch that for 15, 20 minutes, uh, or watch videos of our, our holidays and adventures. And he sees he's now seeing his his broader friendship group on these videos as well that we, that are, are kind of getting involved. Um, my parents. Um, you know, my brother and his kids. Uh, there's a girl, Rory, who's a little five-year-old, uh, the daughter of one of our great friends, and he just loves to watch videos of Rory. Uh, and we just think that's, at this stage, um, healthy as long as, we, as long as we manage that. And you know, there'll be a place for cartoons and, and YouTube and all that sort of stuff for him, for him soon. Um, but at the moment, you know, he, he can see that camping and being out and being amongst kangaroos is, is kind of a cool thing. And he wants to do that on weekends, which is really good. And from the outside looking in, I would say that you either grew up in a family that took, you know, lots of photos and would show strangers slideshows at the drop of a hat, yep. or a family that did none, and you're now making up for the fact that you didn't have any when you were a child. It's that one. It's that one. So if you if you ask me for for photos of of myself as a child, there's probably half a dozen. Yeah. Uh, any photos I've got of my parents are black and white, and maybe maybe the wedding day, and and kind of that's about it. Um, and it's hard for me as my parents as my parents age. It's hard. For my, my my dad played um, you know reserve grade football for Hawthorne. Never played a senior game, but um, you know even to make it at that level, it was a very strong effort, obviously. 
but I can't imagine him as a, a fit and healthy 22-year-old running around in full color in a Hawthorne kit because, you never saw it. because I never saw it. I've only ever seen him. Uh, my parents were quite old when they had me. I'm the youngest of, of four kids and there's an eight-year gap between me and my closest siblings. So my, my parents were 38 when they had me. So by the time I was kind of conscious and aware, you know, they were 50, I suppose, 50 plus for the rest of my life. And so, so I, don't, I don't know them as fit, healthy people, but they must have been because they had four kids and they took us camping a lot of ventures there are there are some photographs of me and nappies at flinders ranges will paint a pound um of uh you know camping sites along the along the new south wales coast etc so they were very adventurous but yeah we don't have that we don't have that record and it probably wasn't till i took on the hockey show that i started to realize the power of images and um and legacy and you know seeing yourself and seeing yourself in a way that entertains and engages other people and entertains is probably stretching i don't think i'm really good at entertaining people but engaging people i think i can do and uh, i think that's what these videos are, uh, are kind of doing and now you know now i'm being asked to do wedding videos and and all sorts of other videos for people which i'll happily do as, as passion projects don't ask for any money or anything just something i enjoy doing and uh, I've got a quote here from some of your workmates. Hugh has everything it takes to achieve greatness in this industry. Everything except for talent, brains, and creativity <laughs> from the entire VB brand team. It must be uh, it must be great working with such a supportive team. Yeah, absolutely. Team there, uh, no, no, that's um, a strong part of creativity. I mean, you mentioned earlier about how, how involved you get. I mean, the, the most important creative decisions you can make is putting in place the right people around you. Uh, and that might be the immediate immediate working team within the Victoria Bitter brand team, um, but it could be the agencies that we work with and identifying identifying the talent that, that you can trust and you have good working relationship with and holding on to them, keeping them, keeping them close to you because you'll give them work, they'll make you look good and it's just a perfect sort of symbiotic relationship. And look, the team I work with, uh, not just at Victoria Bitter, but the broader Carnegie Brewers marketing team, just such a rewarding bunch of people. I learn every single day. The marketplace has changed. I'm a 40-year-old, you know, has been now, but the marketplace is changing. And, um, you know, the amount of talent that's coming through, the knowledge that I get from them to soak in things like 3D printing and podcasting and, um, uh, you know, live streaming, etc. you need to get all that from the people around you um, because you simply don't have time to do it, do it yourself. Uh, so that's important. Is, uh, is getting. It sounds like I've got the wrong people around me from the from the sounds of that quote. No, I'm, um, I'm going to jump in there. They didn't say that. I, I just made that up. But I just wanted to see what your reaction would no, be. I can't. I can't talk highly <laughs> enough of them. And I think I think that would re- reward me uh, as as well. Like I, I feel like. Um, uh, you know, it goes both ways. We've got honest relationships. We give ourselves the feedback when we need to, but I know we've also had plenty of uh, plenty of nights out uh, drinking some Victoria bitters, um, having a meal, uh, and you find that's where the real truth comes out. You know, you can you can schedule in one-on-one appointments and performance reviews and all that sort of stuff, and they're all very corporate-y, But go out and have a beer with someone, and uh, and you'll really get to know them. And uh, and that's that's what we do with our work colleagues as well. Which uh, kind of leads me into the future and uh, what's next. I guess what do you see as your next step, or are you really content with where life is at the moment? Look, I love my current role. You can never. I don't think you can ever be content if you sit back and say, right, I'm I'm done. And uh, you know, you'll find that the world will move on beyond you and past you and around you. Um, so I think you've always going to be going to be looking out, but I think um, you can get that within working with. I mean, I've grown so so much in the last two years working within the Victoria Bitter brand team, just as I did in all the all the jobs before that. Yeah, so I think contentment is really really dangerous because it can be can be fleeting. Things could change pretty quickly in my work or or social life. Uh, what's next for me? Look, I've got a real passion for beer. I, I love it. I'd love to to continue working on um, on uh, beer brands. Um, in Australia or or overseas, I love the fact that you can work with sport in this industry as well. Um, and above all else, I mean, just that umbrella of creativity, I just it's just so it's so driving, and and that's something that I'll just continue to apply in anything I do. I'm not a huge goal setter. I like to retain some sort of um, being nimble and flexible, and concern that you know certain robust goals could lead to a little disappointment. So I just like to perform at the at the absolute utmost of my capability and capacity at the same time, balancing that with family and being a father, et cetera. 
what the future holds for me. It's, it's a tough, tough question. I don't know. But all I can say is I'll, I like the outlook. Whatever the outlook is, I, I like it because um, no matter what's thrown at me, I think I've got the, uh, the people around me to help me get through and make the most of most of life. Because AB InBev actually do encourage a lot of the inter-office moves throughout the global locations, and we've seen some of the senior execs recently move to New York. Mm-hmm. I guess what kind of effect has that had on the local market, and is something like that enticing potentially for you as well? Yeah, that's the great opportunities. So absolutely, it is. I mean, it would you'd be silly to say say no. And I think um, locally, we've we've already seen quite a few people from within the the Australian marketing ranks get relocated across to New York, which is a huge life journey as well as a, a, a business challenge for them. Not a bad spot to go, is it? And, yeah, incredible. I mean, New York. I mean, uh, and there's people who have gone to Bangalore in India, for example, whole different challenge, a um, uh, whole different skill set required, as well as a whole different outlook on life. I mean, New York is New York is one thing, but India, Vietnam, there are all these sorts of opportunities as well. Um, that uh, that will attract various people. So the one thing it's done, I mean, it's, it's made us far more competitive um, internally. Like we, you know, we're, we're now not benchmarking ourselves just against a, the Australian marketing environment, but it's opened our eyes to the global marketing environment. And you know what, we've 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 found out that Australia actually stacks up pretty well. Um, you know, we always kind of felt that in markets like America and England, they're far more ahead of us. Yeah. But um, I reckon if you dig under the surface. They're probably not. Australia is a very, very mature market um, with a lot of cutting-edge technology at our fingertips and a very sort of a liberal consumer marketplace as well. So we've actually got a lot of freedom to do a lot of things that other countries can't do. So that puts us um, at the front of at the, at the cutting edge of marketing. And so there's yeah, a huge amount of opportunities opened up um, locally and that's absolutely something that you know, having discussions with the wife today about uh, about what's next and, and what adventure might be, whether it's a holiday or whether it's a whether it's a shift. So I was just going to ask, what's the next season of Jelly Baby Adventures look like? So they're different. So we've um, we booked a we booked a holiday to Bali. Now I've never been to Bali, and and uh, everyone talks very highly of yeah, Bali. Yeah, me either. I'm looking to do the same. But Bali, it just oh, it just challenges the the back of me a little bit. That are you giving into just just the Bali holiday? So we booked, we booked flights to Bali and we're going to head across to Lombok, which is an island um, uh, just to the east of Bali. Um, there's a volcano there, which, uh, which I'd like to climb. It's over 3,000 metres. So having those negotiations slash discussions with the, with the wife at the moment. Um, and there's some diving. We're keen, keen scuba divers as well. Um, so we'll do, a, we'll do a holiday to, uh, to Lombok in Indonesia. And then there's a camping holiday coming up. So our, our daughter's only a month old at this stage, a little bit too young. Um, so we're going to wait till she's uh, she's two months old until we go on a camping holiday with her for a week. And that, actually, the, talking about happiness, I think that's that's an important thing for me is always to have a holiday planned. Uh, it could be you know six months, nine months, twelve months in advance, but I don't like the idea of coming back to work and not having something to to look forward to as a as a family unit away from the workplace. Um, and so we've had this this holiday planned for the last. 12 months and really looking forward to making the most of those those three weeks away from the office. Um, I've just got a few quick questions for you now to finish on. So if you could play one sport for Australia, what would it be? Uh, Well, it it would have been hockey. Um, The average age of the Australian hockey team these days is probably about 21, 22. So I think that uh, that ship is well and truly sailed. So it would probably be something I could make money out of now. Um, uh, Yeah, you'd love to open the batting for a the Australian cricket team. Well, there's a spot available, and, and I right, think, the well, there's, probably, there's probably eight or nine <laughs> spots available in that team right now, I think. Uh, rugby league. I mean, rugby league, I think you'd have to say you'd want to play origin in rugby league rather yeah. than play for Australia. That probably would have been mine, I think. So I think, look, I've, I've got to remain true to, to my, my real passion growing up, which was hockey. And I'd say I'd love, to, I'd love an Olympic gold medal with the Australian hockey team. Sporting event you'd love to go to that you haven't been? Great question. Uh, obviously, Super Bowl would be up there. World Cup final uh, would have to be up there. FA Cup uh, as well at Wembley would be amazing. Anything you can shoehorn uh, a sponsorship into, mate, and get a uh, ticket. Oh, oh, yeah, <laughs> I wish. Well, actually, so uh, Budweiser, one of ABI's brands, is the, is the major partner of both the World Cup and uh, Super Bowl. But I think I'm I'm well down the list of receiving an invitation there. I'd say be a World Cup final would have to be the pinnacle. Go along to a World Cup final would be yeah, amazing. And you can visit any place in the world you haven't been to. Where is it? Uh, super good question. So we haven't done North America yet. We always felt that North America was something we could do with with kids. So we've sort of covered off the areas that we think were a little bit a little bit trickier um, pre kids. And I think probably Alaska, Alaska, and 
Uh, Iceland, for some reason, really appealed to me as well as places that you could go to with, with kids and see some incredible wildlife, um, but also do it in a do it in a van or do it in a way that's um, that's not youth hosteling or or camping in yeah. those in those environments. Driving holidays are great. We've been on a couple. We drove right across America with the kids. They were three and five at the yeah. time, and it was, yeah, it was fantastic. Actually, I'll tell you the other one is New Zealand. Like, I, yeah, uh, actually, same. I've never been either. I, I, I didn't go to New Zealand until uh, until with my wife. Um, we decided to go on a, on a holiday there, and I would have been you know, thirty five years old at the time or whatever it was, and I got there, drove around. I just couldn't believe I hadn't been here earlier. Like it is spectacular and stunning, and I guess because you know being so isolated in Australia, you kind of think if you're going to get if you're going to save up for a holiday or get three weeks off, you should go to Europe and make the most of it. And so that's what I just did for, for 30 years. And then eventually when I got to New Zealand, um, you know, two, three weeks in a van driving around New Zealand, I think that would be spectacular and that'll be on the list as well. And the other one, of course, is I do have a dream of um, six months driving around Australia um, with a caravan or, or camper van or whatever uh, whatever it might be. You can pull the kids out of uh, out of primary school for a term yeah, awesome. um, and do that for six months. So that's definitely something we're thinking about now, but it's you know seven or eight years away. Now, what's the ideal snack to eat with VB? Uh, probably another VB, I reckon, after you've after you finished the first one. Eating's cheating, is what that what you're I, saying? What do I like? So i tell you what I've, I've got into is um, dry biscuits and either cheese or oysters. My wife's vegetarian, so the oysters are a little bit a little bit trickier because they're harder to share. But, you know, it feels, it feels a little bit old man of me, but... <laughs> But again, camping with some dry crackers, some cheese, and a VB on a one of those camping chairs that you really sink into, and it's got the little uh, little stubby cooler uh, holder on the arm, um, looking out over the beach or a nice or the you know the kids playing or whatever it is like that's that's kind of the you know that's that's the dream that's the paradise at the moment that you get once or twice a year and you really enjoy them. Tell me one piece of advice for someone looking, I guess, to follow in your footsteps, meaning not the traditional route to a job but Mm -hmm. um, someone who may be working or may be unhappy in their current situation but thinks I haven't got this skill set or I haven't got this or I didn't get that piece of advice for them it's hard I mean enthusiasm and passion and all that sort of stuff you can't um, you, you, you can't learn that I think it's something that you just you just are but I think everything you can do in your current job is you can steer yourself in the right directions and I think the example for me is my day-to-day job was finance at a, a, a Ford Motor Company. Um, I didn't really have a passion for for cars, if I'm being honest with myself. But but I um, I would tune in and watch the V8 supercars at the time and developed a bit of a passion. But it was all the time and the hours outside of those working hours that I would invest very wisely into, you know, a hockey show, which was just a creative project. I didn't think that would lead to any anything or anywhere, but it did develop my editing skills and now I, I feel very comfortable you know editing together projects and programs and then uh, you know when I came across to CUB I would do the occasional little uh, I wouldn't say it was a corporate job but it was just a little passion job within our department marketing team and they would kind of see those videos and see what you were doing and see that you were more than just a finance person um, and that would lead to opportunity I think the biggest thing about opportunity is uh, um, I can't believe I'm about to quote Oprah Winfrey but I will but she said that she doesn't believe in luck she believes in the intersection of opportunity and preparation. And normally I, I wouldn't bat an eyelid at anything that Oprah Winfrey would say, but I did think about that and I thought how true it is that so people will talk about luck and you know how lucky I was and how lucky that person is. And, but the reality is that they've got an opportunity. An opportunity presents itself. It may present itself just, just then and there or it may have, this opportunity may have built up over time. Um, and they've, they've done the work to prepare themselves to take advantage of that opportunity. That same opportunity coming to two different people, the person that's prepared for it will get it, and the person that's not prepared for it will fumble and um and ah and, and not sure what to do because they haven't, they haven't done that preparation. So I think that's, that's an important thing for me is that you keep on working, you keep on driving. You, not everyone is going to work in a, in a role that they're, they're super passionate about. That I'm, I, I thank my lucky stars for every day that I, I am in that position. But you know what, in those 10 years where I was working in a role that I wasn't super passionate about, I made myself passionate about it because I I found fun, creative ways, avenues to express information, to take on other projects, to work with the people around me, you know, have little creative brainstorm sessions or whatever it is. You just, you make it, make it fun. You know, you've got to work at that. And I guess with all this taken into account, what do you feel is the key to living life on your own terms? I think it comes back to the balance and having a number of things in your life that you can take extract enjoyment from. 
um, because you're not going to have those things forever. You know, so whether that's your personal relationship, whether it's your health and fitness, whether it's just enjoying sport or time with your mates, or whether it's your your work, yeah, you know, I think you've got to have at least two of those things that you're you're extracting genuine enjoyment from because there'll be a time in your corporate career where you're not getting enjoyment from it, but that's okay. You you work through that and you get enjoyment from the um, from the other elements. Um, and I think I think that's the success is just is just balance. Uh, setting a goal, a business or a corporate goal, a career goal, and focusing on that. I think potentially that's not not that healthy um, because if you don't get there, you've sacrificed a lot of time. Uh, and given up a lot of opportunities in the other areas, um, and and that can lead to, to genuine, deep-seated disappointment. Uh, you know, you might have feelings of failure or, or whatever. But if you can work towards something while having other things that you're extracting enjoyment from, um, I think that's very healthy. So I think um, uh, I think just identifying those things in your life that you get enjoyment from and just keeping them in balance. So the journey rather than the destination. Absolutely. I mean, what is the destination? Don't want to finish it on a downer, but everyone's going to grow old and retire. Your work won't mean anything at that point. You're going to die, uh, whether you like it or not, or maybe not. If they're talking about, you know, in the future, uh, you could be living forever. But at this stage, I'm, I'm operating on the assumption that I'm going to die. So I'm going to extract everything out of this life that I can, um, right here and now, in the future, and also for my kids as well. Well, it seems like a good place to pull up stumps. I think, mate. The last thing uh, I think we just need to do is get a selfie by the VB vending machine <laughs> please <laughs> but otherwise thanks very much for coming on absolute pleasure Dean really enjoyed it thanks mate good discussion thanks for listening tune in to Lifting the Lid next time when we talk to someone else